This today is part two of our part six series on loving our neighbor and what that looks like in the church and with our neighbors in the world that actually live on our street or whatever. When uh, Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't mean have feelings for them, uh, but it also doesn't mean that we can just have good intentions but not ever getting around to actually being neighborly. So we're talking about what does that mean to be a neighbor in Jesus's definition, what does it mean to love and take care of people around us? And last week, Becky Foster and Sarah Coaston talked about uh, hospitality and hosting people. If you weren't here last week, I would ask that you please go online, either to our church Facebook page or the church website, and find the link to the, to the sermon from last Sunday and listen to it. If you were here today, will mean more, but you're not going to miss out on anything today if you missed the prerequisite. But it did start last week if you, if you weren't around. We're going to start in Exodus 24 today, verses 9 to 11. This is as Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they are now at Mount Sinai. And actually, Moses makes three trips up and down Mount Sinai. Uh, we know about the one where he got the Ten Commandments, and then they made the golden calf, and, and uh, he smashed the tablets and in his anger and God had to rewrite him because Moses broke all 10 commandments at once. <laughs> but this is all before that. This is the first time God meets with the people of Israel. Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Then Moses went up and also Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. So Moses brings these tribal leaders. There's 12 tribes of Israel, and Moses brings the leaders up, 75 people. And they go up into the cloud that's on the top of the mountain, and it says they see God. And it doesn't record what he looked like. It just records what was under him. And nothing that was said is recorded at all. I find that fascinating. It tells us what God didn't do. He did not lay his hands on them and bless them because they were rebels. He did lay his hand on Moses um, on the third trip. Puts his hand on Moses. But it's, it doesn't say anything that was said or done except that they ate with God. That's an amazing little fraction of a sentence there. Lost in this verse in the story of the whole exodus these guys ate with god that's amazing i would like to eat with god that'd be quite a meal whatever that is they saw god and they ate and drank the very first thing that god does on his visit to earth after Adam and Eve leave the garden and the presence of God is broken between us, that fellowship is broken between us and God, the first thing he does when he comes back is to feed people. That's amazing. You know, Jesus says we can eat with God. In Revelation 3.20, he says this to you. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The New Living Translation says this, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. 
If you look at the context of this verse, the door he's knocking on is your heart. So he's not talking about some future date when you get to actually eat a meal with Jesus. He's talking about your life and your heart, your Christian life, what we call the Christian walk or whatever, your life of faith. Jesus boils that down to one phrase. It is a meal shared between friends. It's just you and him in your heart being friends. It's that personal. It's that intimate. It's that relaxed. It's that special. It's just you and him sharing life together. And he says, it's, he calls it sharing a meal together. It's just that relaxed, special, close friend that you can sit down and talk with all day long. That's what Jesus says, but he compares it to a meal. The scripture over and over says that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a very large banquet. Yes? In Isaiah 25, Isaiah doesn't know this is Jesus' return, but he's prophesying about the time when God restores justice on the earth and we go back to perfection and Israel and the world are, and the planet are restored. And, and Isaiah 25 6 to 9 says this, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Yay, God. My kids and quite a few other people have asked me, Dad, is there going to be meat in heaven? Because presumably, you know, animals wouldn't die. and We won't get to go hunting. (laughs) But presumably, you know, animals aren't going to die in heaven. And they're like, oh, Dad. Should we be eating all the steak we can eat now? There it is right there. The best meats. Yay, God. Okay. And as we eat, listen to this. This is mind-blowing. This will give you goosebumps. As we eat, at this feast, God will destroy the veil of darkness that enfolds all peoples and the death shroud that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Jesus is going to return. God is going to set a banquet table before us. And as we eat the food of eternal life, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you eat me, you will never die. Come on. This feast is Jesus. He is the feast. As we eat, death will not only leave our body, it will leave the planet. This food is so powerful. Must be pretty tasty stuff too. Yeah. Okay, Jesus himself tells multiple parables where his second coming is a feast or a banquet or a dinner. Next passage is from Luke 14. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, and he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now made ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the the master of the house being angry said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lamed and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. 
For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. As Jesus is telling this story, he has a warning for the Pharisees and for us. The warning is not my point this morning. If you need to hear that, I hope you hear it. Uh, It is a warning. But my point right now is just that Jesus says that at his coming, the first thing that will happen is a feast that God will spread before his people. And the people who are invited turn him down, so they get rejected, but the people... But God will, God's table will be filled. It will be filled. He says, drag them in here if you have to. The next story from Matthew 22 is nearly the same, but he adds some different detail when he tells it this day. Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. They were not willing to come. Again, they sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle are killed. Beef, guys, prime rib. Woo! And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. So obviously the master of the feast is God and his son is getting married. That's Jesus. And so who are these servants that are getting killed that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's the prophets of the Old Testament that Israel rejected over and over and over again, and they would kill them. So here is God, just like Jesus says, your relationship with me is like me coming in and just sharing a dinner with friends. God condenses the whole Old Testament to the invitation to a banquet. Are you with me? The whole, all of God's plans in the Old Testament, was everything was, I, my son is getting married and you're invited to the party. That's, he, he, he condenses it down to that one thing. When the king heard it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, and invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The people in heaven are going to surprise you. I find it fascinating. God says the bad and the good. The bad first. There are four or five other stories or statements or teachings that Jesus gives where he talks about his return as a feast and a banquet. Here's one of them from Luke 12. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. When they when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him. Blessed are those servants, that's us, whom the master, that's Jesus, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. There's another parable Jesus tells where he says the same thing. You've been serving me all your life. When we meet, I'm going to put on the apron and I will serve you. It's just mind-blowing. Humility and love and graciousness and generosity and everything. There are many other examples I could give you from the New Testament, but that's enough. That's enough for now. So the first thing God does when he meets the elders of Israel is is to have a, a meal with them. And Jesus compares our life, our walk with him, to just a relaxed meal between friends. And Jesus says when he returns, there's going to be this planetary feast, this great banquet at the world's end, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the Bible calls it. But all of that stuff is rather 
spatial and theoretical and imaginary, okay? That's, we have to imagine that it happened or we have to imagine that it's going to happen. What does the Bible have to say about our, our life? The Bible actually says a lot about our relationship being with God, our relationship with God being about and around food. The Israelites, when they came to the tabernacle or the temple with their lamb of sacrifice, they would bring the lamb in. The whole family would come together. They would bring the lamb in and give it to the priest, and he would cut it up as an offering for their sin. The Bible in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers gives very specific body parts of the lamb that were supposed to be burned on the altar to pay for their sin. And then the rest of it was cooked. And the priest got a portion of it because in ancient Israel, the Levite priests didn't own any property. They didn't have any income. They lived off of the income of the people that they led in worship. So the priest got part of it. And then the family that came to worship ate the rest of the lamb. And I have never been taught about that as a kid growing up in the church. I never had anybody talk about the fact, but I'd mentioned it to you once years ago, that you get to eat your own tithe. God, we give it to God, and then he gives it right back to us. And that's still true today. You tithe, you give your money to this church, but we take care of you. Part of this family, your kids get taught, and you're part of all of what we do, and you're served in various ways. And I don't mean financially, but as you give your offering to the Lord, it comes right back to you. We, we still get to eat our own offerings. God is just that good. He's just that good. But in the exchange... Well, why didn't they just stay at home and butcher the lamb? Because they gave it to God, which made it holy. And then God says, after it has paid for your sin, then you eat it and you become holy. Come on, come on. This is a, this is a holy meal that makes the Israelites holy. They eat the lamb, the very lamb that they offered to God. God gives right back to them. But God is very clear. When you come, you bring your whole family, and not just your family, you bring the orphans and the widows and the strangers, which means the immigrants, the aliens, who live around you who don't have family. You bring them to my house with your food. Hello? And I have references for you. It's all through Scripture, actually. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. God says, when you come to bring your lamb, you don't just come as your family. You bring the people around you that don't have a family. The orphans, the widows, strangers is the Bible word, but it means immigrant aliens. You bring them and you feed them with your offering. All of worship in the Old Testament was central around food. We call them the feasts of Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Weeks. There's a harvest feast. There's the Passover. It's all around food. Every time they went to the tabernacle or the temple and every time there was a holiday, saying that it was food was involved is an understatement. It was pretty much only about food. In fact, the Feast of Tabernacles was the feast, the celebrated harvest. Look at all the food God gave us this year. And God says, seven weeks into harvest, you stop for a week and you celebrate me out of thankfulness for what I've given you. You can't just bulldoze your way through harvest and, and grub it all for yourselves. You stop. And you celebrate me. And what do you do during that celebration? You build a little outdoor hut. It was a camping. It was a camping religious holiday. They got to build a little outdoor hut. And they lived in the field. And everybody came outside of their homes. And what did you do? You eat all day long for a week. 
You play games, you dance, you have music. It's a big party. Every religious celebration in the Old Testament is a party. God is a hardcore partier. Seriously, everything about worship is about food and wine and music and dancing and celebration. And probably the one we know the most about in our day and time from the Old Testament is the Passover, where they they killed the lamb on the night that God was bringing them out of Egypt. They killed the lamb and they put the blood on its door and and then their children did not die, but the Israelite or the Egyptian children did, and then and then they get to uh, go out and all of the elements of Passover. I don't have time to go into it, but it was their most, if I can say it this way, this is their most holy holy day. So the word holiday is holy day. Is their most holy holy day the Passover, the remembrance of what had happened in their forefathers as they were delivered out of slavery, and they were the most thankful to God for that. And so, for a Jewish person in the ancient Israelite world. Passover would roughly correspond, as far as the family togetherness, special, um, the most revered holiday, it would correspond to Christmas, I think, in that Christmas is probably our most, our biggest family holiday. Even the people whose families are broken feel obligated, at least, to get together for a few hours on Christmas and watch football and, you know, and, or whatever. Christmas is the day when you're expected to go home and be with family. Passover would have been the, the holiday that was the most family-oriented, the most, and, and, and the entire celebration of it is food. It's, it's a meal. It's all, that's what we do, is a meal. So, we know about this ancient Israelite holiday, the day they're celebrating their remembrance, and it, went, it comes all the way down through Jesus, and then Jesus, on the night of Passover, before he's crucified, he says, hey, actually, this is me. I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. This is my flesh and my blood, and my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And as you eat me and drink me, you will have eternal life in you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Eat a meal. Do this in remembrance of me. A Bible doesn't call it communion. Actually, the Bible doesn't call it anything. But we call it the Last Supper, we call it communion, we call it the Lord's Supper. It's all three of the same thing. Some churches it gets called the Eucharist or the Mass. It's all the same thing. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Feast on me. And we use the word communion in this church, come union, to come to unity. Because Jesus said, as you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you become one with me like I am one with my Father. So as we eat his flesh, and drink his blood by faith in the Spirit. We are one with God. And so the apostles, the disciples, after Jesus left, continued to do that. Acts 2 on the screen. Acts 2, 40 to 47. With many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among us all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. 
How often did they get together? Every day. Where did they get together? Well, they got together at the temple on Sundays, but the other six days of the week, from house to house. They just got together, not at the same place every day. They didn't come and have church every day, but they met together in some number, in some fashion, in somebody's house. Not all 3,000 of them at once, obviously. But here today, these five people are having dinner over here and these six people are having dinner over here and these 25 people are having dinner over here and whatever and uh, from house to house it wasn't the same place every day they weren't meeting with the same tiny group of people every day they were moving from house to house there's 3,000 of them that just gotten saved by Jesus smacked by the Holy Spirit and they've got stories to tell they got things to celebrate and they're getting together and they're breaking bread. It just means they're eating together. Now, if any of your imagination has anything in it about they came together and they ate a microscopic piece of pie crust and drank a tiny little cup of Welch's grape juice, I'm here to wipe that out this morning. Everything we do about communion is wrong. Everything is wrong. It's supposed to be one bread and, and wine, not juice. And we took the spirit out and put the sugar in. It's just, I mean, it's absolutely mind-blowing how wrong we do it. It's supposed to be one cup uh, it's just everything we Protestants do is totally wrong. I'm not here to discuss that either. But when it says they break bread every day with each other from house to house, they were actually getting together every day for a meal with fellow believers. Yes. Every day. We know that because in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to tell the Corinthians, you're doing it wrong because some of them were coming to church and getting drunk. And some of them were bringing food and not sharing it, while others went hungry and they were being gluttons. So there's this big, long passage in Corinthians that Paul has to address. And we can sort of see, read between the lines, what it, okay, he's obviously not talking about pie crust and Welch's grape juice. Because there's people, he says, you're, you're being gluttons and you're not sharing. And there's other people going hungry and these people are getting drunk and these people have nothing. I just think it's hilarious that people are getting drunk in church. So who is, who is this group that he's writing these to? Like, who are these people? How could we call themselves Christians? Okay, so who? What? He's writing to the people in Corinth, which is a city in Greece, ancient Greece. So in ancient Greece, all of their celebrations to their gods, Zeus and Aphrodite and Athens and Hermes and you know, all the Greek gods, they were the same thing that Israel did toward Yahweh. It was a feast. Except that in ancient Greece, when they're worshiping their demonic gods it was not just food it was a week-long orgy of drunkenness and gluttony like we cannot even begin to imagine uh, maybe you know something about the the Bacchus the celebration of Bacchus which was one of their gods it's just you can't even describe it publicly what they would do they had actually apparatuses that they would they would gorge themselves for hours and then they had apparatuses that would make themselves vomit so that they could just continue eating and they would do that all day every day for a week or two sometimes it was just a, a absolute mind-blowing drunken orgy of grotesqueness and then these people come to Jesus and they come into not an Israelite system but a, a, a belief that's based on the ancient Israelite Old Testament and the Israelites worship their God the same way, but the morality is very different, yes. right? The morality is very different, but the mode of worship is the same. It's a party. Yeah. But we're not here, Paul has to tell the Corinthians, you're not here to get drunk. Yes, we're here to have fun, we're here to have a good time, we're here to celebrate, but you're not here to get drunk and you're not here to be a glutton. 
So the morality has to change, and Paul has to transform their minds with what he writes. But the way they did what we call church is very different than us, because it wasn't just that they met together and they sang some songs, and, and then they had this little, this little wafer and some grape juice. They obviously, it was sort of like a potluck, because Paul says, whatever you bring, you share. You don't get to eat it all yourself. And then he tells these people who are drinking too much, stay sober. And then the other thing he says is, if you're hungry, you have homes to eat in. Well, what does that mean? It means they weren't coming together to eat together because it was mealtime. They're coming together to eat because that's what church is. That's what worship is, is a meal. A party with food. That's what church is. So he says, if you're hungry, eat ahead of time at home. But what do we do? Well, Alessandro had a picture when he was here from Tajikistan. He had a picture that I tried to steal off of his slideshow, but I got deleted off the computer. But he says, this is our church. He says, this is us having church. Well, what it was, it was like eight or ten people sitting on the floor around a real low table, and it was loaded with food. And what do they do? Well, they come and everybody brings a dish of food and they sit down and they pray and they sing. They do all the things we do. They, they pray and they sing and Alessandro preaches. But it's just in this tiny circle. And the whole time they're just picking and eating. And as we gather in Jesus' name, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we sing over that food and we speak over that food and we pray over that food and we take it in, we are communing with Jesus and we are communing with each other. Absolutely, it needs to include bread and wine, but that is what we call communion is so far from what the apostles thought. And a lot of, really, it's really far from what the rest of the world does. Um, Western Protestantism has got a bunch of hang-ups that we don't need to have. What we call communion, they just had a meal together. Jude verse 12 says, calls it love feasts. He's actually using a negative example. He's talking about false teachers in the church. And he says they are stains at your, they're polluting your love feasts. That's what he calls church. They would come together and eat and share relationship and share communion over food. Why? Well, because I said last week, because as we eat together, it creates relationship. Of course, there are other things that do, but food is very powerful. It is a bonding experience. We don't just open our mouths. We open our hearts to each other. When we eat together, it is so powerful of a bonding experience that Paul says, for those in the church that you know are hypocrites, do not eat with them. He says, I specifically say, I don't mean the people in the world because they're not hypocrites. They're not claiming to be anything to God. But if you know somebody who is in your church that claims to be a Christian and is living in sin they're not repentant of and don't care about, do not eat with that person because it will bond you to them. So when we eat together, when we share a meal together, there is real union that happens. There's a bonding, and the Bible calls it koinonia, the Greek word in the New Testament for church. There's two words for church in the New Testament. One of them is ekklesia. And ecclesia means the congregation or the assembly. It's this right here. It's when we gather together all at once. It means the structure, the group, the congregating together. Ecclesia includes 
the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, the government, and the teaching and the doctrine of the church. But the other word used 15 times in the New Testament for church, we usually translate it church or fellowship, is koinonia. And koinonia is exclusively relational. Our relationships, our friendships with each other is what makes the church. There is ecclesia, there is government, and there is teaching and doctrine and, and an organization. There is an institution called the church, and that's not wrong. The word institution has become a dirty word um, to describe the church, but it's not wrong. We are an institution. We are an organization, and we're supposed to be. But we're supposed to be an organization that is filled with koinonia, which is heartfelt love. I sent you a verse on your phones just yesterday in real love. Love your brothers and sisters in your church family. Why would, God, or why would Paul have to write real love? Because a lot of you are faking it. And, it, and they were then too. We are supposed to live in koinonia. Not just the meetings of the church, but in the heartfelt fellowship of the church. There's a song that says, we, They will know we are Christians by our love which is based on a Bible verse that says the same thing. The world is supposed to look at us and see that we like each other, to see that we actually live what we say, to see that, they, that we love God, but that we love each other. That is, it's from 1 John, that's the proof that we love each other, is our, that, that we love God is our love for each other. And what is one of, it's not the only way, but what, it's one of the main ways, and it's listed repeatedly in Scripture, where does koinonia happen? Over food. When we share a meal together, when we share what we have, when you've taken time to prepare something for somebody else, when you are the guest and you feel honored and welcome and loved, it opens our hearts. It creates friendship to share a meal with somebody. And it doesn't have to be in your home. It can be a cup of coffee at Denny's if need be. It, like we talked about all of that last week. If you weren't here, please go listen to that online for a lot more context and help with what this looks like. So koinonia, what does that look like in the context of sharing a meal together? Because we don't get together every day and eat together here. We don't have potlucks every day or even a couple times a year. Well, I was looking back at just this last week. Between Sarah and I, either together or separate, in the last eight days, it's happened six times. A week ago Saturday was Star and Richard's wedding, and there was a wedding reception right here, and, and there was a bunch of people from the church and other brothers and sisters in Christ, not from our church, but we're eating with them in celebration. And there's not just celebrating Richard and Star, it's communion between us. We're catching up between old friends and acquaintances that we hadn't seen for years and so on. It's koinonia. Yeah. So last Sunday we got invited to some friend's house, and we got to catch up and meet somebody new, and there was fellowship. Monday, after Sarah and Becky talked about hospitality and making time in our busy schedules for people, Sarah and I were doing some shopping. Monday's my day off, and we're doing some shopping and errands, and we're going through the taco time drive through and we look through the window, and there's Irwin sitting there having a taco by himself. And we said, let's go sit with Irwin. And I knew my to-do list is this long, and I knew what was going to happen I wanted to go through the drive-thru, I wanted to go to the next three stores, and I wanted to get home. I just knew, okay, we said it yesterday, put your schedule aside and make time for people. So, So we go in, and two hours later, we are still in the booth with Erwin and Nathan, 
having tacos. And then there was uh, a, a guy that wanted to meet with me this week and talk, and he said, I'll take you to lunch. And so we did that. Last night, my kids and I had dinner with Josh and Stacy just right here, just had some pizza. But it was still eating together after we were done with the phone books. Everybody had gone home, and it's just us. We had two invitations, one for Friday and one for today, that we actually had to decline because of the phone book situation. And it's just this weekend is, is booked solid and crazy, but that's koinonia. That's what I'm talking about. It's just life just happening, and in the process, sometimes we make time, sometimes it's an accident, a happy accident. Sometimes it's, it's work. But we make time for each other and we share a meal together and we have fellowship. The fact that I have to say this, the fact that some of you are wondering, why do I need more friends? What's the point? Is a symptom that we are Amer- Americans because none of the rest of the world is asking that question. If you went to Italy or Brazil or India, they are not asking, why should we spend three hours having lunch? with a friend because their cultures are all about food and connection relationship people the rest of the world lives for people we live for time and money everything in america is a cost benefit analysis i'm too busy and if i'm going to make this decision it's going to cost me something is it worth it just the fact that some of you are wondering why you should care is is a symptom of a real brokenness in our culture the fact that we think we don't have time for people. Um, I know you don't have to do it six times in eight days. Uh, in Acts, it does say how many times? I forgot. What does it say? Every day? Yeah, every day, yeah. Yeah, every day. They met together in some form and fashion in somebody's house. And they shared food, and they talked about Jesus. And they encouraged each other. So... I am here this morning because I know that some of you have some friends in this church. I'm talking about in this church. When I use the word friends, I'm talking about Christian fellowship, koinonia. Some of you have some friends. Some of you don't. Some of you are aware of that fact and some of you aren't. But regardless of where you are in your extent of koinonia that you have in our church, we all could benefit from quite a bit more. Yes. Pastor Ted said this morning, if, if this isn't real, then I want to go home. <laughs> and it's true. I'd rather be at home too if I didn't care for all of you. So how do you make it happen? How do, you, how do we create koinonia? Well, it isn't going to happen on accident. And it isn't going to happen because you magically, miraculously have some opening in your schedule on Thursday. And it isn't going to happen because you meet somebody and feel this profound friendship with them before you actually create the friendship. So what does that mean? It means we have to make time, we have to make ourselves do it, and we have to get over our own insecurities and fears about making new friends. We all know the saying, if you want to have a friend, you have to be one. But then everybody's sort of shuffling around, looking at their feet, waiting for somebody else to invite them to be a friend. Hello? Some of you are really friendly, open, welcoming people, and your homes are open all the time. But that's not the majority of you. Some of you have real, meaningful friends, but only a few. 
the Lord wants to sew the net a little tighter today. My challenge for you, my request, what I'm telling you this morning is, I want you to invite someone else out to dinner, either at a restaurant or to your house, today. I don't mean the dinner has to happen today. I want you to do the inviting today. Invite someone you do not know and have never had over for a meal or a coffee. If you're a guest with us this morning, obviously I'm not talking to you. Unless you want to do this, jump right in. Feel welcome. All right? But zero pressure. No pressure. If you're just visiting or uh, you're a guest or you're new around here and feeling out what our church is like. But if you are a long time around here, I expect you to take this completely seriously. You will show your maturity or not by how you handle this. In fact, Scripture says the leaders must be given to hospitality. Not just do it once in a while. Given to it. It's a requirement to be a church leader. To have your home open. So if you are or if you hope to be, this is the path. So again, if you're a guest, please do not feel any pressure. If you want to jump in and do this, great. You can meet some new people and have fun. But if you're a long-timer around here, I... I know you know some of the people around here. There are others in a church our size you don't know. You see them and you say hi, and you know them by face, but you don't know them. You might know their name, but you don't know them. So invite them over. Make a new friend. If you're not comfortable doing it at your house, it's totally fine. There's parks around. You can go buy some Subway sandwiches and go to the park, or you can take them to the restaurant or whatever. There's state parks to go play in or whatever. God is changing the weather this week. It is supposed to be quite sunny and warm. Like God knew what I was preaching on this week, and he said, you can, you can fire up the barbecue grill and invite somebody over to your back patio for grilled chicken, or you can invite them to your microwave for a hot pocket. It does not matter. The food does not matter. Sarah and Becky told you last week, get over your having to have your house perfect. Just do it. Just do it. This is church. If you don't have koinonia, you are not a part of this church because koinonia is church. So for those of you who are now sweating or offended with me, you are exactly whom I am talking to because you obviously don't have koinonia. You may have friends and you may have family that you're close with, but you're not fellowshipping with the church. If this bothers you, then you're not doing it as a way of life. And that isn't koinonia, and that's what I want. So it doesn't matter if it's a roast from last year's elk or prime rib or a can of SpaghettiOs. It is okay. You can grill hot dogs. It's totally fine. It doesn't have to be expensive. I said last week, if you're a private introverted person, invite over one other person out for a cup of tea and just dip your toe in the water and see if this is somebody you could be a friend with. Make a half-hour coffee date. If it goes bad, you can run away. You're only, it's only a half an hour. You can do it. If you're, if you're safe, help when you're home. Get out the pinochle cards. Have a good time. Whatever. Well, there's lots of ways you can do it. it doesn't, like I said last week, it doesn't have to be anything specific. It just It's you. I would say, just some strategies for those of you who are not accustomed to this if you invite somebody out to a restaurant you pay that's good manners okay 
If you invite them to your home, great. If you get invited to somebody's home, ask what you can bring. You can bring a salad or dessert or whatever. Be thoughtful about the kids and the family you might be inviting if they have kids. What are they going to do at your house? If you're the one bringing the kids, be very, very mindful of your own kids. Because we're specifically saying you're going to meet with somebody who haven't done this before. So be very mindful of your kids' behavior and their whereabouts and all that. I would say older couples, invite somebody really young. Get out of your own social circle and your own age. You will find treasures. Those of you in your 60s and 70s, invite over the 20-somethings. You will find treasures. Those of you in your 20s, invite over the white-haired folks. I'm serious. I know that's not at all what we do naturally. I'm saying you will find treasure. You will find treasure. You can be very close, good friends with people not your age. God has strategic relationships for you to build. And it isn't going to accidentally happen. You have to do it. So single guys with single guys. Guys, it's not an excuse for a date. That's a different kind of fellowship. Do that later okay guys with guys ladies with ladies couples with couples families with families whatever however you want to work this out whatever the lord leads you to do but have a have a coffee or a meal whatever it is and then just talk maybe you can play cards or a board game not nintendo but something share something and you can talk about family and work and their hobbies and activities and how did you come to jesus and how did you find our church and how long have you been here and and so on. And yeah, pull out the pinochle cards or your magic tricks. Or if you have a 15-year-old son who loves to tell really stupid jokes, you can have him just entertain people all night long with really, really bad, dumb jokes. And it's a good time. Pull out your banjo or your guitar and just, I don't know, whatever, you know. If you're Rod McCall, you can show off your chainsaw collection. He's, he's not even here to hear me say that, but whatever. Just be brave Make a connection you have not made before. Koinonia is what we're after. Fellowship over food equals friendship. I realize that you may try this. You may go approach somebody you don't really know. You maybe know their name. You know they've been around here a while. But you you invite them out to dinner or over to your home. And after it's done, you're like, "Mm, I'm not feeling it. That's fine. It happens. You know, it happens. Don't give up. Do it again. You will find treasure. You will find spiritual fellowship. You will find not just worldly friendship. You will find spiritual friendship with somebody out there who is, and and you'll talk, and and most of the time, we have people over, we hear their story, we talk to them, and, and, you know, who are you, where are you from, how did you get here, how long have you been walking with the Lord, what was your past, and they leave, and they're like, I had no idea. They're awesome. We love them. We had no idea that happened in their life. We had no idea they fought that battle. We had no idea that they walked through that. And, and there's so much of even the people you think you know that you don't know until you sit down for three hours over food and you just talk. So, yeah, maybe it's prime rib. Maybe it's a burger and a beer in your fire pit. What, whatever. It just, But it is with the agenda of I want to know you. I welcome you to my home or my table, and let's talk about who you are and who Jesus is. It doesn't have to be all spooky spiritual and weirdly intentional. Just talk. Just talk. 
Make a new friend. Don't walk out of here and talk yourself out of this. Okay? Long timers, I'm talking to you. Don't walk out of here and talk yourself out of this. Do this. Make it happen. Like, well, it's really busy right now. Wait till I'm not busy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's really going to happen. Oh, this really makes me nervous. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Welcome to the club. It's what it is. This is friendship. Putting yourself out there. Meet somebody new. You can do it. Don't let it slip away. You can do this. You got it. Be brave. Be bold. Koinonia. Yes? Yes. All right. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for bonding us together. Thank you that you don't want us to live life alone. Walk through life lonely and afraid and not having real deep friendship, Lord. But you've given us the means to do it. Thank you for the secrets that you show us in your word of how we become one with you and how we become one with each other, even as you and the Father are one. Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that maybe is sweating this a little bit. This is way outside of what they would normally do. Lord, I ask your blessing of grace and peace on them. I ask for specific Holy Spirit guidance on who you would like to connect them with, a strategic relationship that you want them to have in their life, Lord. And I pray for fun. I pray for joy. I pray for new friendships to be formed as we do this venture together, all of us, inviting and being invited over and making new connections and new relationships, getting to know new people, Lord, in your kingdom who are our brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would teach us to love our neighbor, not just in word but that we indeed love each other and have real care and fellowship. Thank you for the koinonia of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your holy meal, that you feed us with yourself, with your love, with your spirit. We bless your holy name. Amen.